HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. Today's program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. For more information, visit www.rt11.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. And welcome to The Food Scene. I'm Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Pablo Johnson. Now, I love that you have a website, pablo.com, your first name, but let's talk to people about how you spell that name and why you spell that name that way. Uh, I spell my name, Pablo, spelled uh, in the South Louisiana fashion, or the imaginary South Louisiana uh, fashion. Uh, It is P-A-B-L-E-A-U-X. And um, that is a name that was my, was, uh, my, my writing byline. And it became that um, because it was previously my college nickname. I come from, um, I grew up in French Catholic South Louisiana in a place called uh, New Iberia, which is a um, little town in Cajun country. And uh, there my name was, for the majority of my life, was Paul Johnson. The, uh, the story I tell about that is my mother's maiden name was uh, Carmelite Laurel Hebert. Uh Her father was, uh, was of Cajun descent, and uh, so she had a beautiful poetic name. Um, she married a guy named Phil Johnson, and I became Paul <laughs> Johnson in one generation. Oh, man. But I went to, uh, I went to, when I went to college, I went to college in San, in San Antonio, Texas, and a uh, little liberal arts school there. And um, st- as a, people started calling me the Spanish version of my name, which then became, uh, I started spelling it the way I would back home, as a lark. And so that became my nickname during college. And then um, afterwards, when I started writing about, let's say five or so years later, um, nobody would remember my actual name because it, it gives you no traction. And um, so I ended up just uh, started sending out, using Pablo as my byline. And if you put a silent X on something, 
an editor can't forget it, yeah. for better or for worse. Well, you know, that Silent X 2 begs the question, is, is this man Cajun? And, I mean, you already answered that. Mm-hmm. But what, what is Cajun? And is it something similar to Creole, or are they completely disparate things? They are very, very different things. I mean, the, the easiest way to describe what Cajun culture is, is, um, is in, modern day, uh, in the modern-day expression, it is the, um, the culture that uh, is in South Louisiana, South Louisiana below I-10. I-10 is our basic dividing line that runs about 20 miles north of the Gulf of Mexico, um, all the, the width of the state. Uh, below that, it tends to be you know, people who were descended from um, the Acadians who were uh, what is now modern-day Nova Scotia. Uh, they were kicked out in 1755. They were rejected by the British. Um, when, it went, when it was called Acadie, and it was a, it was a, French, um, it was a French colony from 1608 to 1755. Uh, those people were forcibly ejected. Families were put on boats, often separated, by the British at that particular time. Uh, there's, there's a longer story to that, but it's a uh, they were and they were basically sent sent away in diaspora. Yeah, um, but and, I mean th- this link to Nova Scotia too is a fascinating thing because I think a lot of people assume that Cajun culture uh, um, is is grounded in Louisiana that the people of oh, that it, area it it is and it developed in that way. I mean it's the the origins are in Nova Scotia, but what they had was uh, roughly it took them about ten years to get. For them to reach critical mass in a part of in a very very swampy swampy and prairie country um, in the Louisiana coast because it was you know it was 1755 you just didn't get on a plane um, but it took them uh, after since then that part of the country was really of not a whole lot of interest to anybody because it was you know kind of swamp and prairie you know swamp and um, coastal prairie um, until uh, they found oil there so a lot of those a lot of those cultural elements were able to evolve on their own for basically over a hundred years, almost two hundred. Is this something growing up there that is just ingrained in your system that you can recite back, or is it because you've written three books about Louisiana food culture <laughs> that you're able to recite it so well? I spend a lot of time explaining different parts of um, Louisiana to people and Louisiana culture to people because they are in the in the contemporary mind from outside of of that particular place. A lot of times they get mushed together. Like people will think that, uh, like the the traditions of New Orleans are remarkably different from the from Cajun country, but people found Cajun food through Paul Prudhomme, who was at that particular time cooking at a restaurant in New Orleans, and so people are very enthusiastic about Louisiana culture. They just often don't know the the different the, the differences between the two. I always thought, actually, uh, uh, what was that actor's name that? Dom DeLuise was Paul Prudhomme. <laughs> I always thought it was a character, not a real person. I apologize. The, uh, the, the, a lot of our people tend to be shaped that way as yeah. well. So. <laughs> but, like people you of s- appetite. Yeah, but like you said, you know, th- there are these, not preconceptions, but these kind of packaged items that come out of New Orleans that represent the state as a whole. I mean, mm-hmm. Even like Zatarans, mm-hmm. you know, their spice mix. But when, first of all, how do you say New Orleans as if you're from there? It varies neighborhood to neighborhood, if you can believe it. Um, the uh, one of my favorite was um, is people from uh, a lot of people from the Gentilly neighborhood of New Orleans say Nuyens, which is one of the most beautiful ways to pronounce the name of the city. Um, just like uh, in the, in the similar way that that people. You, 
find something that is distinctive about the way that people say it. You basically say New Orleans. Um, sometimes it's shortened slightly. It is almost never New Orleans, as people lean into that a whole lot. Um, but New Orleans is one of those cities that is amazing because it's human scale and because it's, it's it, you know, by uh, American standards, kind of an ancient city. Um, and uh, it's really easy to fall in love with. And it is very beloved by many. And so we usually take that as a great thing rather than as something to, um, no one says, the short answer to that was no one says New Orleans. Nobody. Nobody. It's, that's the way, that's something that you do it if you really need to rhyme something in a song. So the animals, I think that's the only time I've ever had someone. Yes. 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 But I mean, you must love Cajun culture and, and, you know, the, the foods and, and, you know, traditions of Louisiana so much. Because when you were in Austin for college, mm-hmm. you were inviting hundreds of people to your house for gumbo. Yes. And you don't do that just because you want to make friends. Part of it, well, part of it is that in the, the way that in, in South Louisiana, specifically South Louisiana, and to a lesser extent North Louisiana, which is functionally the South. I mean, we are like, yes, uh, things that are different about South Louisiana. Uh, it is, has historically been a predominantly French culture. It has different flavors of it. New Orleans is its own animal. When I, when I tell people about Louisiana, I said there are basically three states. When people talk about it in terms of it being the South, capital T, capital S, like the Mason-Dixon South, you know, it, South Louisiana has had a French Catholic um, underpinnings for way longer. You know, it, it, Protestantism just didn't take in a, in a historic sense. Um, it's different now because of modernity. But um, it is predominantly French, predominantly Catholic. Um, there are, it has different kind of cultural cues than, um, than, uh, Alabama, than East Texas, uh, uh, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia. Those places tend to be more similar than not, and we are very, very different from that. Because like, for a long time, like Cajun French was a language, it's an archaic French. It was based on the, you know, it was a French that is very, very different from Parisian French. Um, because the, uh, the people who went to, um, like people who from, from France that come, come to South Louisiana say, that is re- they have no idea. They need a translator sometimes. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's archaic French that was, you know, like so many things with that culture. Again, these were people who chose to live very far. They were, they were you know, already frontiersmen and you know, frontiersmen and fishermen in the uh, maritime Canada. And then they ended up in uh, rural South Louisiana, where nobody wanted to go there because spiders, snakes, alligators, etc. <laughs> you know, but it, they created such—and I, I say bubble in a good way—but such a kind of contained, not necessarily insular, because of hospitality mm-hmm. and people coming in um, environment. Like in legalese, I always see droit or drot. I don't even know how to say it. D R O I T, and Dwight. that only exists kind of in the legalese of. New Orleans, like that statuette, and I don't know why, but I feel like it's the same thing as poor boys or beignets. Like it's it's not a poor boy or a beignet if it's not contained within that zone, within that region. These, I mean, and the, the, going back to the original thing about you know, you know, when I was living elsewhere, and I lived in, uh, I spent a lot of my adult life in Austin, Texas, and I've been living in New Orleans for the, so I grew up in in rural South Louisiana, alternated years working and traveling for about five. Um, then after trying to go to grad school and it not working out at all, I went to um, uh, Austin, Texas and was there for about 10 years. Um, and then that's where, uh, and then when you go to other places and you're from Louisiana, you realize that the, one of the things that unifies you is we always talk about food. 
you know, in the same way that New Yorkers are always talking about, uh, you know, rent, rent real estates and et cetera, and, and train construction, in the same way that people in D.C. always talk about politics, the same way that people in L.A. always talk about uh, show business in some way, shape, or form, we're always talking about food. You know, it's a very, very participatory thing, not just in terms of, oh, what are the great restaurants, but it's like, it's what do you cook? How do you make your gumbo? How do you make your red beans? How is it different? How are they similar? Um, one of the kind of the, the tropes that often, you know, that, that people say a lot is that you will be sitting there having the, you know, just an absolutely mind-bendingly good lunch, telling a story about another mind-bendingly good dinner that you had. But, oh, this reminds me of this. And, it, and it's very much in that way a storytelling culture that is, that is kind of unified in a culinary way. But you are a storyteller. I mean, you are an accomplished photographer, journalist. And I think what you really love doing most is having people sit at your grandmother's table and eating with them so stories can be abound. Yes. Do you, I know you equally care about the food, but how important is it to have conversation over those meals? Part of the thing about, you know, in, in South Louisiana, you are unified by the table. You know, and that, that's a... Um, Mine is a little bit different also because I come from a big family and I'm, I'm from a big family within a big family. So um, I grew up at my grandmother's table because we would go to my grandmother's house every chance. They lived in Baton Rouge, which is about 90 miles from where I grew up. But um, my mother was very close to her sisters. And so anytime she was one of eight kids. Um, so we grew up at my grandmother's kitchen table. Not the dining room table because the dining room table is a place where you had to put on, you know, kind of a... a a not comfortable shirt and set up, sit up straight. The kitchen table was where, where, was where the action was. Um, and we, uh, uh, over the years, I happened to, when I was moving, when I moved from Austin to New Orleans, uh, my grandfather had passed away. And the, uh, um, I was able to, I was the one who, who got the table because I had the room for it. Because my apartment, you know, New Orleans, first moved to New Orleans was huge. Um, I decided to start uh, kind of using the tradition, like as you mentioned before, what I did in Austin was once every three months or so, I would cook a variation on uh, a Thanksgiving thing called turkey bone gumbo, um, which I adapted to Texas because I, I, I couldn't make a seafood gumbo in Austin at that time in my life because it would have cost a million dollars. And we like, one of the things is, um, again, coming from both South Louisiana that shares this with also being from a big family is that I have no culinary sense of scale. Yeah. <laughs> so like I had worked in some kitchens, but, it, but it's, a, and then you get the same feeling with people who, um, who kind of work at, at different restaurants where you're making things for 30, 40, 50 people. That's your batches. Oh, it's kind of like when my wife wakes soup, she makes soup for the week. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the, so in cooking big, um, the, I saw, I, instead of doing it like that, like, in, like once every three months, I would have, I would t- do an afternoon party. It would be on a Sunday, and um, I would do gumbo and red beans, um, and the gumbos were huge. And eventually, you know, by the time we left, it was, it was like 150 to 200 people over the course of the afternoon, just kind of an, an open house. Everybody would come by and eat. Um, and when I got to New Orleans, I didn't have the backyard to to do that. And so I said, okay, well, I've got this table. I have, um, and so I said, I'm going to make red beans. A, f- a friend of mine in Austin taught me how to use a pressure cooker. So I knew that I could make red beans fairly quickly. So it's, it's, um, I just made that the, um, the default for that. So every Monday I knew that I was going to be making red beans. Um, 
the pressure cooker made it easy to do in terms of timing. And I would just invite whoever, whoever could come. And in the, I've been there for almost 16 years. Um, and uh, so every Monday for about 15 or 16 years, um, I've had a table, I have, basically I have a 10 top in my, 10 to 12 top in my, uh, in my house. And I just invite, it's completely run by Kismet, whoever comes by or whoever is in town or, hey, my friends are coming over, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if there's room, I feed them because I, I keep it amazingly simple and amazingly elemental. I, may, I cook uh, red beans. Uh, and it's, that's a very adaptable dish because you can do it as vegetarian or you can do it with uh, um, andouille from a place called Laplace, Louisiana, which is you know, just some of the best smoked meat in the whole wide world. Um, and... Uh, that and cornbread for cornbread, and that's it. There is no green salad. There is no additional things, and we have whiskey for dessert. So it's a um, so. You the rules are simple. You bring what you want to drink. It's not fancy. It is amazingly casual. Um, it is not a dinner party. It is supper, and so you end up um, with a bunch of different people who have sat at that table. So um, and that's kind of the, the that's the local version of that that's that's before before it ever went on the road that was the it was kind of a um it was a it was that ritual it was a monday ritual that always had good conversation and you know different you know and everybody wants to drink wine on a monday night yeah well you know what's kind of amazing is that this is a tuesday taping and i know you did red beans yesterday because it was a monday but we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come right back and talk more to pablo johnson about his red beans road show following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. The following program has been brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 Potato Chips dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate. An incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 Potato Chips believes comfort food should be just that. Know where your food comes from. For more information, visit rt11.com. Welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell. Here again with Pablo Johnson, Pablo.com, and don't forget that silent X. So the Red Beans Roadshow. I know as a fact that you've had lovely people over at your house, like my friends uh, Jenny and Nick, uh, mm-hmm. who, who stopped by a few months ago. But I've also heard stories about some guy named Benedict Cumberbatch <laughs> stopping by the house as well. And talk about kismet. I mean, 
Who who in the world has been to your house for this thing? There, I mean, it's it's literally whoever I run into that week. I so mean, there you was, just ran into Benedict Cumberbatch. That happened accidentally. <laughs> um, the this was I forget what year it was. He was down there apparently doing ten uh, uh, twelve years a slave. Um, had no idea. I had and I had called some friends of mine. Uh, uh, he she is a uh, research research librarian and burlesque dancer, and he is a uh, a clarinet player. And called them one summer day, and I said, hey, you guys want to, um, hey, listen, you guys want to come? Because we've got room at the table. Because it's all based on if there's room at the table. Um, and they said, sure, can, do you mind if we bring a friend? It's like, sure, absolutely. And so it's like, so they came, and um, they were there, and I just kind of said hello to them on the porch. And um, I looked up, and it was like, I had already seen the, the BBC stuff. It was before he became really, really huge here. But it was like, uh, but I had watched the BBC stuff and really, really enjoyed it and kind of went, huh. He goes, hello, I'm Ben. It's like, yeah, yeah, great. <laughs> know who you are. Come on in, have yeah. a good time. And it was, it was, it was, it was interesting. My that has, you know, that was like one evening. It was, a, it was a really good time. Um, but my niece, who's 16 years old right now, it, it is that is that's amazing amounts of 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 good fortune to have for that niece. She goes, Where's the cherry satin? It's like, settle down, <laughs> settle down. You know, recently Epicurious called you one. Of the 100 greatest home cooks of all time. <laughs> I, I, I love that. That was almost a spit take. But, it was. It, you know, part of that is obviously being able to cook. But I think the other part is hospitality and kind of the ambience that you set. And from hearing those stories and knowing you well enough, uh, the way you set the table, the way you set the scene, the way you invite people in... Uh, makes you like an other, you know, any other uh, home cook that I know. Part of that is that's just ingrained. I mean, that was, you know, what I, I've often, like I took a lot of cues from my grandmother, uh, Elizabeth Laurel Seal, my mama's mama, um, who basically, that, again, that was her kitchen table. Uh, she was bossy when she had to be. She was very welcoming. She had eight kids and she fed them and all their friends. So um, having that open door policy is kind of uh, a hallmark of of that part of the country. You know, it's like you, you would never come in through the front door. You always come in, you know, through the through the door in the kitchen. Um, so if, if you if you if the doorbell rang, you knew it was somebody you didn't want to talk to. <laughs> um, but um, but I've learned like the whole thing about the, the the it's an honor to be on that list. It's a very great honor to be on that list. But it's basically the same thing as you know the you know the Trogs being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's like they had one song. They just had the one song. This is the I do three or four dishes well. I do them enough, just like my just like you know any grandmother. It's like you do. This is all mama food. You you do it a million times where you can do it in your sleep. Um, this is the like I, I accepted that um, as my friends gave me grief. Um, the because they know my range and that my range is amazingly limited. Um, but it is a uh, like I accepted in in for for my my grandmother and all the grandmothers who don't do that. I, I accepted it in their stead. You do it well enough though to take it on the road. In yes. two thousand nine, Red Beans Roadshow began, and why was it important for you to take it out of your house and on the road? So I travel. I tend to travel a lot. So so my my primary stuff has been a a, a, a food and travel writer and a photographer. Um, I have a lot of friends in a lot of different places. Um, the, a lot of, uh, it started in New York, God, a million years ago in like 1991, uh, when a buddy of mine who was living in Brooklyn said, Hey, you better get here quick because 
we're going to have 25 people over here for gumbo at his place in uh, Park Slope in 91. Uh, so we got and we got a shop and we got to cook. We got 25 people coming on Sunday. So we did, and then we made it happen. It was fun. Um, but you, a lot of times people want to have Louisiana food in other places, and it's a, it's a chance to, if I'm, like when I travel, whenever I can, I stay with my friends. Because it's my chance. To, like when you have a sleepover, you get to have long talks. You get to you know, stay connected to people in ways that you wouldn't otherwise. Well, the whiskey helps drink. too. Whiskey yeah. does not hurt. <laughs> whiskey does not hurt. But um, we did a. Um, so I, I started doing that in two thousand nine. Uh, I had I took a one year job uh, at, um, in Louisville, Kentucky, at a newspaper there, and, and, and that ended up not working out. I was back, going on the way back, and decided I was going to spend that summer driving. And I, so I took, um, I basically just like bought a bunch of andouille and, and red beans and went from place to place cooking in my friends' homes and kind of doing that as a, as a proto version of what, would, what was to come later. Um, that was a travel project that was just an excuse to do some writing and, and see my friends and cook for their friends. Um, what I started doing in 2015 is I had enough, um, I'd, I'd been cooking in, uh, at my house at that point for, yeah, 13, 14 years. And a friend of mine, Ann Cashin, who runs a place called Johnny's Half Shell in D.C., um, said, hey, listen, we, we talked about doing this at my restaurant. We should do it. And I did what I did every time. I said, yeah, we really should. We absolutely should. <laughs> I've had a bunch of different um, restaurant people come through and be guests. Like, you know, oftentimes friends of friends. Hey, I got some friends coming. Any friend of mine is a fr- any friend of a friend of mine you know, is my friend. So it's like, just, they, you know, are they going to be here on Monday? Sure. You know, if, the, if there's room, then they can come. Um, the, so what Ann had said was, we've talked about this a lot. We should do it. And I said, you know, try to do, try to do the, the runaround. And she said, you know, we should do that now. We'll figure it out now. And we kind of like figured out a, uh, the best way to do it at her restaurant, which was, which was then on Capitol Hill, is now in Adams Morgan. But it's like, it's, what do you need to pull this off? What do you need to clone this table that you know we do in New Orleans every Monday, and make it work um, in a restaurant setting for people who you may or may not know? Well, I mean, also, what goes in red beans? I know it's red beans. Is it specifically kidney? It is. They are. Um, they are kidney beans. Um, the in New Orleans, uh, they specifically use a, br- a brand called Camellia, which is, and you know, it is one of those things that is a you know. All the, it's always ask a grandma, mm-hmm. yeah, and that is the one where it's like you have to have those. And there's a Camellia is now a sponsor of the Red Beans Roadshow, and then you have to use the Trinity, right? You can't use Mirepoix. It is me. I don't even know what Mirepoix is. <laughs> no, you, um, it's you need uh, you need. Um, in mine, I put uh, onions, bell pepper, garlic. As as the primary saute, so it's like I don't I, I don't even use celery. You know, it's usually the Trinity is is part of the celery, um, and sometimes they they people say that you can add garlic as the Holy Ghost if you want to use it <laughs> to extend that 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 particular Catholic metaphor. Yeah, and then spices, thyme has to be in there. Um, no, I don't use thyme. Hmm. I use I like and everybody's again everybody's recipes for the things that you make are very very personal. Your gumbo is very personal. Your red beans are very personal. Uh, um. Suzanne Whitaker, who was my, my uh, high school speech coach, I was back for college, and she was making red beans, and I said, what is that flavor? It's amazing. And it was sweet basil. So it's, um, 
salt, pepper, whatever like whatever spice mix you have. I use a thing called Tony Shasheries. But the um, the uh, um, now I'm trying to do the, the the thing in my head. It's it's almost completely ingrained. Uh, bay leaf, uh, sweet dried sweet basil, and then you finish it off with uh, minced black pepper. I'm sorry, minced uh, um, flat leaf parsley and green onions. It's an amazingly simple dish, and you use and you use like I said, you use the uh, I use this. I've come to use kind of a smoke heavy sausage from um, a place called Laplace, Louisiana, which is the river parishes upriver from New Orleans, which is where the Germans settled. So it's like that's what's called the German coast. So their andouille is not French andouille. Their andouille is basically it's all shoulder meat. So it's like getting the, it's spiced with uh, salt, pepper, and garlic, um, and, and red pepper often. And they just smoke. They smoke it over over oak, so it's it's wonderful. It's like the core of a country. Here. I mean, th- this is real soul food. This is what Louis Armstrong professes his favorite dish. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think it still holds true, <laughs> the same way as as when it was served to Old Satchmo? I I mean, it's all these things are so personal. I mean, it's it's you know in a lot of ways, you know. Red beans became a Monday tradition in New Orleans because it was tied to pre-industrial um, uh, uh, domestic routines. Uh, Monday was wash day, and so you know the the, the kitchen help or the, the the lady house had to go and on Monday that's the day that you would do um, you would do your laundry, which was not throwing it into a machine. It was going down to the river and washing it in the river. So you needed something that could be put on a banked fire that um, could simmer all day and would be delicious. And so red beans became that thing that you always saw. It was in restaurants. It was in uh, school cafeterias. It was in um, in people's houses. And that, so that became associated with that day. Yeah. Um, the When you ask different people, and again, that's where a lot of this culinary conversation comes up. It's like, huh, well, how do you do your red beans? You know, the, there are some people who would, wouldn't imagine it. There's, there's a thing called pickled pork, which is a very, very city thing. <laughs> and getting back to the differences in... You know, in the geographical differences, uh, in a lot of ways, you know, New Orleans is like New York. It is like no other place. You know, you can't say, oh, well, New York is just like. New Orleans is just like. And it's not like the area around it at all. Um, so Cajun and Creole are very, very different in that way. New Orleans is, uh, red beans is a very, very New Orleans thing. Um, it's kind of been accepted as a pan-Louisiana thing as time goes by. But, um, but that's a, um, but like, when people use pickled pork, some people use a ham bone. Some people, and, and so they, everybody has their different way of approaching that dish. And that's, I'd like, I just, I've locked onto mine and that, tr- and tried to over time make it transportable. Yeah, I feel like there are just so many long standing constants in, in New Orleans, like muffalettas at Central Grocery, uh, at Touffet, Bananas Foster at Brennan's, Beignets at Cafe Du Monde. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when people try to stray away from them, that's when the locals or, the greater culinary community tries to rein them back in. Do you think that does a service or disservice to New Orleans? Like, do you like seeing riffs on poor boys or mufaladas, or do you care about the traditional tried and true way that it's always been done? I mean, there's always, there are certain things that you do because, you know, they're done best there. You know, it's like, it's the, I, to be honest, like I don't have Louisiana food outside Louisiana. Um, I, you know, I just, it doesn't come up because when I'm traveling, I want to do when, when people, if people are coming to New Orleans and they want to have, you kind of want to have New Orleans food where it is. Um, 
the uh, like I don't come to I, like I wouldn't go to New Orleans. I, w- I wouldn't suggest that somebody from New York come to New Orleans and have great New York style pizza. I just wouldn't do it because that's the, that it's it's you know in the same way like I wouldn't try that in other places. People are going to do what they're going to do and that's fine. But you know it's part of it is looking at different aspects of of you know, the culture and where it grew up and how it did. Yeah, and how it, it, it continues to evolve in a lot of ways. But um, like red beans and rice are red beans and rice. Period. You know that it, there's some there's there's certain kinds of like culinary nostalgia associated with that. Um, like there's certain kinds of gumbo that I like because they were similar to the ones that were served in public school cafeterias in <laughs> Iberia Parish and you know in the 70s and 80s, um, and in certain kinds of breads that were baked in that in that that uh, context as well. Um, that stuff goes deep, and that's and that's kind of why it's it, one of the cornerstones of our culture. I, I also just feel like you care so much about archiving. As as a photojournalist, the you know uh, portfolios you've done of second lines of Indians, and you can explain better what mm-hmm. that is, aren't the Mardi Gras and Jazz Fest everyone else knows New Orleans as. It's something that happens weekly, if not daily. I mean, it happens all the time there, and it kind of gets glossed over for these fantastical singular events or days that happen well i mean there's a new orleans is there's so much to love about it you know and that's why again that's why it's a very very beloved city um it also has kind of these intact cultures that are still practiced every you know so every year to year week to week in some cases um that are if you know where to go and you know where to see them they're just absolutely overwhelming in an experiential way the um please hold (laughs) The um, one of them is, is the social aid and pleasure club tradition, which is uh, which people know as second lines. Um, the thing that people tend to know more about is the um, it looks like a jazz funeral in a way. Um, it is also tied into the, the, they're thrown but they're presented by these things called social aid and pleasure clubs, which are um, in like like the immigrant you know the uh, the Italian American societies that they had in, in East Coast in East Coast cities. There were people from, uh, but instead of being like tied to that we're all Hungarians, uh, we were in this neighborhood, and a lot of them were people lived in that neighborhood were African American longshoremen, um, and you know they would they would have these different like kind of neighborhood based groups that have been around basically since the 1880s, um, and every year each one of those clubs would have on a Sunday would have a street parade, and um, it's one band probably you know anywhere from say six to six to ten instruments and they're dressed in these amazingly kind of technicolor zoot suits um the so it's basically elaborate street dance that is done you know um as part of just as it's just what happens in the city and um the the club and the band form the first line of the parade and the crowd that goes with the crowd that goes along to dance to sing to experience that um is called is called the second line, and so they, so it's, they've been called they've come to be called second lines, and so there's a lot there's forty thirty nine I think thirty nine or forty Sundays a year, um, you can go to one of the if you know where to go, it's one of these these parades that you know kind of like go and kind of moves like a clot through the city, um, and it's just amazing it's just astonishing astonishing thing to see and that's and that's you know been going since the eighteen eighties eighteen nineties. Yeah, but then then seeing your imagery of, I mean, the costume itself, 
what are Indians in a Mardi Gras fashion? A lot of people may have, if you, if a lot of people who like New Orleans, like really, really dove into David Simon's Treme, you know, and one of the things that they did remarkably well is in that particular series was present um, one of the, one of the primary characters was based on um, Mardi Gras Indian culture and what it takes to, and the way that, that, that they approach that particular craft. Uh, the Mardi Gras Indians are um, a, uh, a tradi- basically a cultural tradition which in- includes which encompasses music, dance, and amazingly intricate craft work, um, sewing specifically, um, to make um, really um, very elaborate Indian suits that are that have a uh, um, Re- amazingly difficult beadwork. Basically, they're 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 te- they're Technicolor suits. They look like basically um, Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, but in absolute Technicolor. Um, the, the like Plains Indians models done with with um, the Plains Indian you know costume cues that are uh, that are done in these amazing bright 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 colors. Um, it also has a much deeper tradition in. Um, if you listen to the music, ethnomusicologists listen to this stuff, and they say these are basically the same, same songs, rhythms, it's, and it's just, there's no instruments to it. It's, it's traditionally um, a cappella and drums, which it's drums and tambourines, which are also considered a kind of drum. Um, the handiwork come, is similar to um, uh, the kind of Haiti, what they were called voodoo flags. Um, it's a very, very intricate kind of, of sewing where you're doing embroidery with um, small, basically small, uh, uh, small beads, uh, sequins, uh, rhinestones, uh, sewn into these amazing, into these amazing costumes. In fact, um, Jessica Harris showed me, you know, has done a lot of the stuff. She also has a podcast on this network or did. Um, and, uh, they have a very particular tradition on probably eight or nine days a year. Um, on Mardi Gras day on, um, uh, uh, St. Joseph's Night on th- these three uh, events called Super Sundays, which are which are daytime daytime things where th- it's, those are for the community, so people can see their work. And um, during Jazz Fest, you can also see them. if you've been to the Jazz Fest. Uh, one of the stages of Jazz Fest is usually dedicated to both of these kind of cultures. They're um, uh, they have to make a new suit every year, and it's an amazing it's amazing amazingly labor intensive. Um, so learning more and more about those different cultures and about the people who do them, because it's really easy to see them and say, oh, well, it's a Mardi Gras costume, and it's anything but. It's something that's much, much more deeper and labor-intensive uh, to do that, because you literally have to sew these tiny little beads that are, you know, if you can imagine the, the, you know, the, the size of a chest patch of an average-sized person, um, and imagine it covered with um, little pixels uh, that are half the size of a grain of rice. And then you, when you realize, you say, oh, that's not just something they bought. That's not just something that whatever. they had to sew that um, into heavy canvas, bleeding into the canvas. Um, and they do it every year. And they do it every year. And they do it every year. And it's amazing. Um, but l- learning more about that and learning more about how uh, these you know, people um, create and maintain this culture is astonishing. And that's, and again, it doesn't happen anywhere well, else. Well, you are one of those people maintaining in 
letting this culture hit the road and kind of expand people's horizons. So, and the more and more I learn about you, the more and more I, I adore you, your culture, and want to get my ass back to New Orleans Come as on. soon as possible, especially on a Monday. Um, and if you're ever there on a Monday and want some red beans and you're a friend of mine, I am more than willing to introduce you to Pablo himself. <laughs> but check out his website, pablo.com, or redbeansroadshow.com to see where he is on the road. But as always, thank you. And again, I really hope to see you back in New Orleans soon. You've been listening to the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.